Hello. I'm Patrice. And I'm Rachel. And this is episode 63. We're going to talk about the cultural oppression of women today. So get ready for a really fun one. We know how to pick. It's going to be <laughs> It's going to be a little depressing, not going to lie. But fascinating. Yeah, and I think we were both really, I guess, inspired to do this episode with events in the U.S. over the summer, um, a yeah. returning of Roe v. Wade, which, if you're not from the U.S., is you've probably heard about anyway, but is the uh, abortion rights Supreme Court decision, which was overturned during the summer. So Yeah, and we're going to see some interesting parallels throughout history um, that still happen today. So a little teaser for you there. <laughs> Before we do that, let's talk about horses. <laughs> so, our, yeah, our language news. Patrice found a really cool infographic about horses. Well, it's not really about horses, I guess. Sort of. It's about the word for horse in different Native American languages. And the infographic mm-hmm. was basically a map. We'll put a link to that in our uh, show notes so you can see it yourself. And how different languages call horse. Uh, on the American continent, when the, sta- the Spanish first arrived. So the caption reads, Map of Native American Etymologies for Horse. There were no horses in the Americas before the colonists arrived. Native Americans quickly developed new words for this strange animal, often associating them with dogs, their one other domestic animal before contact with Europe. This is from Maps on the Web. So some of them say sacred dog, mystery dog, it is ridden, log hauler, big deer, like a deer. But we had tried to do some digging, as great journalists always do. <laughs> and <laughs> what did you find, Rachel? Well, I did find that a lot of, especially like the plains areas or plains tribes in the United States, they... That seems to be true, that the word is something like big dog or large dog, something like that. And also, I found it was pretty interesting that the reasoning might not be completely that they were just ignorant about what a horse was, but actually the attitude towards horses. They called it large dog maybe because they saw the horse not as property or as like a work animal, but as a member of the family. And mm-hmm. the Sioux tribe uh, called it something like large dog, but they also call them relatives. So that means like a more spiritual connection as opposed to the colonizers that saw them as, yeah, like work animals that were completely <laughs> just used for, yeah, for war or for, Uh, farming, stuff like that. Yeah. And actually, some historians say that horses originated in North America. In the Americas. Yeah. But all the wild ones were killed by early hunters. And they said some horses snuck over to Asia before the land ice bridge disappeared. um, And they were domesticated by Asians and then Europeans who reintroduced horses to the Americas. I found the Canna Foundation. Mm Mm-hmm. And according to them, Native Americans always had horses. And it's like from a European perspective that they they brought horses to the Americas. Mm-hmm. Um, the Native Americans are known as the people of the horse mm-hmm. and because they have a really, really strong connection to horses. Like you were saying, they treat them like part of the family. And the reason that sometimes they call horses big dogs is because of the connection that they develop with horses it's just like with dogs like they're domesticated and they have a sense of loyalty and there's like a like a mutual respect there between native americans and their horses yeah i felt i thought it was a really interesting statement that i read by a sioux i don't remember what position in the tribe 
But the Sioux people historically were known for their relationship with the horse nation. They were much more than a tool used for battle, packing, or hunting. The horse was like kin to a Sioux. Mm -hmm. In today's times, our trauma keeps us from growing. Horses are reflective of emotions. They mirror our heart's pain and struggle. And they also talked about how horses have the same emotions as humans. They can feel all the same things. So it's much more of a deep relationship than, yeah, just like a person and their work animal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, something I read said, while the Europeans, they use their horses in battle and then kill it and eat its meat, mm-hmm. right? Whereas the... um Native Americans saw them as kind of like, it says, you can see in the eyes of the horse that he's prepared for battle. He's willing to die for the man that sits atop him. He feels proud and honored to represent his tribe, the people that treat him as though he is godlike. The people that look at his sweat as if it's magic. There's something to be said about the mutual respect between the human-horse relationship. Like they would take the sweat of the horse Mm -hmm. and rub it on their bodies. (laughs) Um to get the energy of the horse. Mm-hmm. So they treated them very differently from the Europeans. Definitely. So, yeah, I thought yeah. that was a really interesting little bit of information about the meaning of horse in different Native American languages and, yeah, some speculation as to why that might be from a couple of different sources. Yeah, really interesting. Fun article, and uh, it, I think the map was was cool the different etymologies mm-hmm. and i'm glad we looked into it and kind of found out a little bit more about the background of the term yeah me too cool well let's get into our main topic shall we yeah i feel like we should give a little bit of a warning for the squeamish because uh well what are we going to talk about we're going to talk about witch hunts chinese foot binding and genital mutilation today yeah Whoa, guys, that's so graphic. But it's important. And it's something that these are things that have happened and or are still happening. And so we need to talk about them because they're related to culture. And we all need to know about ways that culture oppresses women. Right. And I guess we can give a retrospective like time mark if you want to skip over some of the more graphic things. Mm-hmm. I don't think I'm planning to go into too much graphic detail, more about the effects. Mm, okay. I, I'm going to be talking about genital mutilation, so yeah, I don't want to discuss too much graphic stuff, just yeah, <laughs> because it is really awful. Yeah, definitely. But okay. yeah, if you'd rather skip ahead, I guess we can put a, a time marker. Okay, so let's start with witch hunts. Um, witch hunts are really interesting because they, well, first of all, they usually targeted women. So that's why we're talking about them today. The way they came about mostly in 1580s to 1630s in Western Europe Mm -hmm. was, it was a really interesting mix of factors that came into play. First of all, um, there were late medieval, early modern trends in intellectual thought So learned people, they knew about the true existence of witches and demonic possession. Like that, those were facts that were being taught Mm -hmm. in academia. There was also a lot of evolution in judicial procedures at the time. So the justice system was being evolved and we had these trials that people were, were, they were doing something new. I guess that we should note that we're talking about European Witch trials, right? Well, that's where they started, and then they ca- carried on into the Americas, right? Right. Yes, but uh, they started in um, in Western Europe, and then uh, I think it was 1692, they were in Salem, or in the colonies. And then there was also the dissemination of information via the printing press at the time in Europe. So they usually targeted older women mm-hmm. who, at the time, there was a lot of people living in close quarters and people like neighbors quarreling and um, women who it became kind of mainstream to be like, oh, my livestock uh, have are dying. Um, it's probably my neighbor's fault. Mm-hmm. So 
this this is also at the time that like there was a lot of like heretic hunting but that's kind of like a little bit of background for you on it yeah and it was a pretty prominent practice throughout europe germany had a lot of witch trials scotland mm-hmm. had an enormous amount mm-hmm. i read i think scotland was sort of one of the worst examples huh. of that I think we are most familiar with the Salem witch trials, which were actually pretty small in comparison to like what, uh, in comparison to the amount that there were. But there were quite a number throughout New England as well. But just to take Salem as an example, so Salem, Massachusetts, was a Puritan town. They practiced really strict religious beliefs and practices and traditions. And they had really strict roles for women. So women were meant to be subordinate to men and be very um, meek and really didn't have a lot of power. So when women were older widows or landowners or something that went a little bit outside the normal role of a woman or somebody, I think at least one of them was homeless or sort of a vagrant, um, maybe a prostitute, Mm -hmm. then they were Mm -hmm. a lot more likely to be accused of witchcraft as well and more likely to be convicted because they didn't really have the money to, because you had to pay for your lodging in the prison and your meals and everything. So if they fell in that group, then it was, uh, if they didn't have family or something, then it would be a lot more likely that they might be convicted. And of the 19 people that were accused, where is that? 14 of them were women. And a lot of times what's interesting is a lot of the people also doing the accusing were women as well. So it's sort of, I guess, a cultural rigidity that like, if you step outside what's seen as expected or normal for being a woman then you might face some more scrutiny and usually if a man was accused um it was because he w- he was associating with a woman who was being accused of witchcraft right yeah the brother or the husband or something like that yeah um the thing about scotland though was really interesting so i'll talk just a little bit about that yeah so basically they had this sort of Scottish witch hunt for around 200 years. Um, The Witchcraft Act in Scotland was enforced between 1563 and 1736. And so during that time, I think a low estimate um, or the people that have been officially historically identified, there are about 3,837 wow. people that were accused of being a witch wow. in that time. Although, yeah, not all of them were uh, killed or even um, convicted. So, <laughs> But yeah, that shows you kind of like a huge scale that was happening. <clears throat> and I also did a little bit of research about modern witchcraft to see if there was mm-hmm. still stuff going on. And interestingly, and not really that surprisingly, there is. <laughs> uh, but what did surprise me is that the UN has found that the number of witch trials is actually increasing nowadays, that like than the past decades, I suppose. And what was a little bit interesting too is that they find that men or women or children can all be accused of witchcraft. So it doesn't seem like it's such a gendered thing now. But interesting. I mean, progress? Is that progress? Yeah, I don't know. I remember seeing an example of witchcraft. Um, I don't remember which country it was in Africa, but it was like albinos. Albino Africans were being um, targeted by which is which yeah as thought to be like magical but yeah horrible i was reading about that um i can't remember either which country it was but yeah i read and like a couple of examples 
it said in India, this is according to National Geographic, in India, a lot of times it's land-owning women who are thought to be witches, and then their neighbors will start to collect firewood, and often, so, like, to burn them. So often then the women will leave their land in fear, and then their neighbors, neighbors will take it. So that's that does seem oh. gendered, for sure. Um, <laughs> Definitely. One interesting one, though, was in 2005, an eight-year-old girl in London was accused of being a witch, and then her family did all this really intense stuff to her, like rubbing chili peppers in her eyes. Um, <sighs> but thankfully, the the government stepped in and said uh, no <laughs> and took that child away. Wow. Yeah. I mean, like, where does it stem, right? Why is it – why does it happen – and specifically to women. Um, we both happened to read this article. They made a really great point from the conversation. Oh, the title is Most Witches Are Women Because Witch Hunts Were All About Persecuting the Powerless. Mm-hmm. You know, looking for society's most marginal members. And that's just one example of how um, power is exerted upon women. Mm-hmm. Was and is. Yeah, and if you remember in... The Crucible and also, like, the real Salem events thought to be the sort of origin of the witchcraft was um, an enslaved woman. So even more marginalized, less or more powerless. So, yeah. 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 Well, part one. (laughs) Okay. What do you want to do next? Okay. Let's talk about um, Chinese footbinding. Okay. So... Catrice is going to lead on this one. Yeah. Um, I have to say that it's one of the most fascinating things that I've learned about. Um, I actually learned about it when I was listening to an audiobook with my mom as a teenager. And I'll have to link the title in the uh, show notes because I don't, I don't remember what it was, but it was a really, really good book. Okay. And I actually asked a Chinese friend if she's ever seen a woman with bound feet. And she said when she was growing up in Xi'an, which is in the middle of China, a very traditional city, she did see a woman who lived in her apartment complex who had bound feet. And um, she was really old. And uh, she said she all, the woman was always smiling. And maybe that's because she like was looking at kids and old people love seeing kids play. That was her her explanation. But I was like, how, how did you feel when you saw her feet? And she said they were amazingly small. Whoa. So this practice, uh, I want to start with the origins of it. There's a few explanations of the history. It's possible that it started in the 6th century when an emperor's concubine danced with, um, he described her as, a lotus springing from every step, which is a reference to Buddha, who's um, in Tibetan Buddhism. That's something they say that when Buddha walked, a lotus sprung from every step that he took. Mm. Um, so he compared her to Buddha and the way the um, feet were shaped in Chinese foot binding was, was compared to a lotus flower, um, something that's closed. Um Another possibility is in the 10th century, it's said to have been inspired by a court dancer named Yao Niang, who bound her feet into the shape of a new moon. And she danced for Emperor Li Yu by dancing on her toes inside a six-foot golden lotus festooned with ribbons and precious stones. Oh, my God. So, really interestingly, uh, there's a legend that a girl lost her shoe and the king found it and was able to locate her because her feet were so small. What does that remind you of? Very much reminds me of Cinderella. Yeah. So they they fell in love and got married and there's speculation that Cinderella actually comes from that Chinese story. Wow. That's really interesting. Yeah. So interesting. So... I'm going to go into the details now of how they did it. This is where it's going to get kind of graphic. So if you want to skip ahead, 
Um, I'm not going to spend too much time with it, but it is like something that just is really, really interesting if you don't know how that, how it happened. So usually um, girls started when they were as young as three, sometimes as old as nine, but usually they wanted to start them younger because they um, the bones were not yet fully formed, so it was easier to shape them. Um, and they would usually start in the winter. It's a process that would take about two years. Okay. Um, so the way they would do it is... They would soak the feet in warm water beforehand, and they would fold the toes under the foot. Just the four toes. The, the big toe was supposed to stick out, but the other four toes would be folded under the foot. And they would um, bind them up in a long silk uh, sheet. So every two days, they would open up the sheet again and uh, fold them under more. Um, sometimes, and so like, eventually the bones would start to break and the goal was that the arch would also break so that you have like the, the toe, all four toes are folded under except for the big toe, which is sticking out. And then you have like a little triangle of a foot. And if you look up pictures of bound feet, they were shaped like a triangle and it kind of created the like what what a high heel looks like except the foot is shaped like a high heel like it's bent over and so you were supposed to be able to um, put a coin in between the arch and the like what had been folded over and the heel um it was (sighs) the toenails would have to be clipped really short the wrappings like i said they were removed every two days to prevent blood and pus from infecting the foot. And sometimes excess flesh was cut away or encouraged to rot. Um, Toenails were sometimes permanently removed so they wouldn't grow into the flesh and cause infection. Oh my god. Yeah. The girls were forced to walk long distances to to make their arches break faster. And over time, the wrappings got tighter and tighter and the shoes got smaller and smaller as the heel and sole were crushed together. Oh. Yeah. Once a foot had been crushed and bound, the shape could not be reversed without a woman undergoing the same pain all over again. And it was considered good to lose a toe because it made it easier to make the foot smaller. Whew. Oh my yeah. god. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I knew... <laughs> I told Rachel not to read my notes so that I would get the full shock effect from her. Oh, God. Like, I knew a little bit about it, but it's just horrifying to imagine. It's horrifying. It's horrifying. And actually, one in ten girls died from the practice because of gangrene. Um, It often resulted in permanent disabilities, too. No doubt. Yeah. Yeah. There were variations in Sichuan province. Um, They would have like a cucumber foot. So the women's toes were wrapped around the bottom, but they were more like long cucumbers, which didn't affect the heel or the ankle. So, okay, we know what they did. And the goal was to have a three inch foot. (sighs) That was called a golden lotus. Three inches. How much is that in centimeters? CM for our European friends. 7.62 centimeters. That was called a golden lotus if you had a three-inch foot. If you had a four-inch foot, it was a silver lotus. And if you had a five or more-inch foot, then it was an iron lotus, and it wasn't very, very good. So, yeah. So why did they do this? This is just as messed up. So it started in the upper classes, right? It was a status symbol. Small feet were idealized. Mm -hmm. The other thing is that it altered the shape of the foot, right? So that you couldn't walk normally. Mm-hmm. And you had to have this little dainty gate. They called it the lotus gate. Um, and it relied on the inner thigh and butt muscles for support. Like with, for tiny steps. And that was, cons- that was said to tighten the vaginal muscles. Resulting in greater sexual pleasure for men. Right. Yeah. So you had to have your feet bound when you were three. So that you could have husband, so you could marry up, basically. Right. Um, and that's why it started going uh, more into the 
it became more normalized. In southern China, it wasn't as normalized among the lower classes. It was more for the gentry. But in northern China, it was very, very common. Mm. It was also used to discipline like girls who were who had a lot of energy and liked to run around because women's labor at the time was mostly like sitting down and using your hands, like weaving. Uh Um, So they didn't really need to walk around much anyway. So it would kind of, if you can't walk, (laughs) then you have a lot of time on your hands to do things with your hands. So, but would that be the case Um, still mostly with the middle? Well, like non-peasants. Well, that's, that's the idea. Right. That's the hope, right? If you have bound feet, then you're going to marry up and then you won't have to do like hard labor yeah. or labor in the fields or something. But I would imagine like even, well, like how would it be possible for like peasant girls to have that? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, actually it changed the Chinese architecture in cities. Like if you um, see old Chinese architecture that hasn't been destroyed by the communist revolution, um, there are like bars on the sides of houses for women to hold as they walk down the street. My God. Yeah. I've never seen one in China, but it's it was outlawed in in 1912 by Sun Yat-sen, and it, but it lasted a thousand years. It lasted for five dynasties. My God. Well, if you say it started in the 5th and 6th centuries, it's longer. So that's when that's what they think it might have started around then, um, but they're not sure. They actually found um, a tomb of a woman, I think in the like 10th century or the 11th century, who had like abnormally shaped feet. So that's when they think it might have started, like a, a noble, a woman of noble birth. Right. In the 19th century, a lot of reform-minded Chinese intellectuals began to consider foot binding as a backwardness of China and started, they advocated abolishing the practice, which is great, (laughs) but um, they didn't succeed in opposing it. Actually, in the Qing dynasty from 1644 to 1912, um, rulers opposed foot binding, but then they realized that it was beneficial to their governance, so... They gave it free reign. So it was, I guess it was easier to control people because it was more popular and China has a long history of controlling people. So around the 50s, during the Cultural Revolution, I think that's when it really um, stopped finally. But yeah, it was outlawed in 1912, but it was still practiced. Mm -hmm. Not, Not everywhere, but yeah, it's, um, it's it's one of the most messed up things and i just i can't imagine like a 3-year-old <laughs> like having her feet beaten yeah. so they could break more quickly uh. so so i guess now it's completely gone yeah i've never i think there's uh as far as i've seen like and i've traveled a lot in china now because i haven't been able to go anywhere else for the last two and a half years and uh, from everything I've read, too, um, it's it's gone. And I think all the women who might have had it, they're probably in their, um, or who are still alive, are probably in their 80s or 90s. If Yeah. Wow. But, that's uh, good step forward, I guess. Yeah, it's funny you say that. That's the like the great leap forward for the cultural revolution in China. Yeah. Well, I guess I'm comparing because what I'm going to talk about is not like that. Oh, no. So, should we talk about it? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, so what I have brought to today's episode is also a difficult topic, which is female genital mutilation or FGM. Okay, so what is it, first of all, I'm sure you've probably heard of it before. Basically, it's any practice that is cultural or traditional that does anything to, well, female genitalia. And it's practiced in around 30 countries. 
mostly in Africa, the Middle East, and some parts of Asia, but also um, some places in Latin America I read. Anyway, there are four types. This part might be a little graphic, but I'm just going to briefly touch on them. But if you want to skip it, go ahead like one minute. Uh, the first type is basically removing the clitoris. The second type is cutting away the labia minore, sometimes I think the outer as well. Ugh. The third type is reshaping the opening of the vagina and oftentimes closing it by like binding the woman's legs together, well, cutting it and then binding the legs together to create a very small opening or like almost closing it. Why? So why is the question? Okay. The fourth type is anything else that's done like piercing or cauterizing or other things that might be done. Okay. Is that like traditional, like, like piercing is like a tradition so that you have a decorated. I don't know if it's done for that reason. Um, but maybe so anyway so many questions why okay so i think i'm done with the sort of gory stuff when is it done so it's usually performed on a girl between birth and around 15 years so it can be performed i think a lot of times it's done maybe between like 11 and 15 but yeah i guess it could happen at any time so during puberty yeah i think that's more typical um, but Great. what's the problem with it? Well, <laughs> there are <laughs> many, let me tell you. Okay, so the problem with it is that it has no health benefits. In fact, it's the opposite. Yeah. And it can cause, well, immediate problems, health problems. Yeah. But also lifelong health issues and pain mm-hmm. and many things. So you can hemorrhage in the moment and die from blood loss, or it can cause, well, it causes sex to be painful a lot of times, which a lot of times that's why it's done, is like to remove a woman's sexual drive so that they'll be quote unquote more loyal to their husband. And well, it sometimes makes that very painful as well. So imagine that for the rest of your life. (sighs) It can cause problems during birth, especially with the third type yeah. that I mentioned. Right. That was... um, and a lot of times then they have to cut it open so that the baby can come out or have a C-section when they live in a place that medically can't handle it. And it increases infant mortality. You don't say. As well as mother's mortality. Um, and they esti- the UN estimates, or sorry, the WHO estimates that there are around 200 million girls and women alive today that have had it. So that's a lot. Wow. That's so many Um, women. So what did I miss? Oh, during, like recently, a lot of, it's become a lot more medicalized. So a lot more health providers are doing it with maybe varied reasons like the thought that if they do it it'll be safer which isn't the case or it might be simply money related or the belief that if more people have it done that'll decrease sort of the normalization of it but yeah the who and unicef and all of these organizations are very against health providers doing it yeah um also yeah it can be done really barbarically like with a shard of glass or with just like whatever tool is at hand and yeah usually not done in a safe way no so the reasoning behind it um it's in the places where it's practiced it's often a cultural norm that women must undergo and that might make them more able to be married. So a lot of times women who don't have it uh, might have more stigma against them to getting married. Mm -hmm. Um, Other times it's um, a rite of passage into womanhood. 
as I said, it might be to suppress sexuality. Some people associate it with religious beliefs, although no religious scriptures require it. So currently a lot of like the WHO or UNICEF or the UN, they're trying to do a lot of educational things to, well, to teach about the dangers of it and uh, that it's actually not a religious practice. So I found some interesting sort of first person um, statements that I'll read a couple of them Okay. in a second. But yeah, it can cause, also they um, increase risk of HIV transmission. So Because of the unsafe um, ways that they're performed? Maybe. I'm not sure why that would be, but yeah. Also psychological impacts can include a girl losing trust in her caregivers or long-term feelings of anxiety and depression. Um, so according to UNICEF, there has been significant progress made in eliminating the practice in the past 30 years. Young girls in many countries today are at much lower risk of being subjected to FGM than their mothers and grandmothers were in the past. However, it is not universal or fast enough. In some countries, the practice remains as common as it was three decades ago. Over 90% of women and girls in Guinea and Somalia undergo some form of genital mutilation or cutting. Mm. So, some good things and some mediocre. But opposition is actually growing and in countries affected by it, seven in 10 girls and women think that the practice should end. Um, In the last two decades, the proportion of girls and women in these countries who want the practice to stop has doubled. So it is facing more, um, yeah, opposition, I guess, than in previous decades. Yeah. Okay, so I have just a couple of examples of young girls um, who have refused to be cut. This is a girl who is 15 in Kenya, and she said, this is from the UN's website. So this is pretty interesting, but I just will talk about a couple. Okay. Um, this She says, I'm a role model. Some years back, my parents talked to me about female genital mutilation and the harmful effects, and I accepted, and I said that there is no way I will be cut When the cutting season was reached, the community members told me that I have to be cut. I refused, and I told them that cutting is not for the girl child, and it is not in the Bible. Mm. So that's like a cool effect of, well, her parents have supported her, it seems like. This is a girl in Egypt who's 17, and she learned about it from when her mother um, joined a community education program, and they discovered that there is no religious requirement for the practice and that it is harmful for the medical and psychological health of, the, of women, their communities, and their children. And now she understands this. She is committed to sharing the knowledge with her friends and, most importantly, the next generation of daughters. So, yeah, it's really, it seems like a lot of women are starting to, yeah, oppose it, but there is, it still happens a lot. Yeah. And and it's just like so. this kind of thing, all of these things that we've talked about today are just reminders that where you're born is such a crapshoot, you know, in terms of luck, mm. especially as a woman. I mean, anybody, but as a woman, it's like, am I, are you going to be born into one of these cultures at the wrong place at the wrong time and then be subjugated in this way that your culture endorses it just Mm. it's not fair and um and it's something that like as a teacher i try to pound into my students like we're all human and we need to treat each other that way. Mm-hmm. Whatever you see on the outside and wherever people come from, like all of these people that are, were killed or that have had genital mutilation or their feet were bound, like these are all people with uh, pain and souls and memories of all the terrible things that have happened to them. 
I don't know. I don't mean to get preachy, but it really, really makes me, makes me angry. Yeah. And I mean, these are sort of extreme examples, but it exists most places, at least something to some degree. Yeah. The, the damn patriarchy. Yeah, it's the patriarchy. Um, yep, you got it. I mean, and I think about like corsets in Victorian England. It's sim- like, that's one way that um, women show their femininity and um, all the societal expectations that women mm. are expected to conform to. And I mean, men also are expected to conform in some ways, but again, like, like women are really underrepresented in government and in major companies and only a few years ago did women in Saudi Arabia earn gain the right to drive their own car you know right yeah and yeah I guess the other thing is that it's not something that happens like you fight for it and then like you fight for some right and then it's like there forever Mm -hmm. as we just saw with Roe v. Wade like you have to keep pushing for it and pushing for more even when it seems like okay like we've we're there but I, th- I don't know that you're ever really you've ever really arrived like you have to keep pushing yeah definitely I guess that's my takeaway that's a great point another takeaway is if there if you want to help the UN work on their goal toward gender inequality which um, they were Mm -hmm. hoping to reach gender equality worldwide by 2030, but unfortunately it doesn't look like that's happening. Um, They're not on track. Oh, I forgot to mention that, (laughs) that they're trying to reach zero FGM by 2030. Yeah. They also said that COVID has slowed that down. Yeah, COVID has slowed down a lot of their sustainable development goals, which... um, This one is a big one, but there's some some stuff you can do to help women, and we're going to link to that on the website. Um, One of them, for example, is economic empowerment. So investing in women's economic empowerment sets a direct path toward gender equality, poverty eradication, Mm -hmm. and inclusive economic growth. Women make enormous contributions to economies, whether in businesses, on farms, as entrepreneurs or employees, or by doing unpaid care at home. So this is like a list of tangible things that you can do um, right now to help. Yes. Yeah. So go check that out. Mm -hmm. And I guess it's time for our feature of the week. Our feature of the week, which we might be calling a challenge of the week, because last week was so fun. I'm into it. (laughs) Yeah. Or the challenge Um, zone with like... Yeah, because we're really, um, I think we're really into games. At least I am. Confession, so. I don't like games, but this is kind of fun because <laughs> it's something that I like. <laughs> but I'm like always cool. the Debbie Downer when it comes to board game night. Like, I don't want to play board game, card games. Oh, my I God. know. No, I don't agree. I know. I'm such a grouch. <laughs> anyway, this one will, this one I'll do. So the game this week, we have selected each two songs that were originally English language popular songs. Mm -hmm. And we found a cover that's in non-English. So, Patrice, we have the possibility of earning three points per song, and we'll see what happens. Mm -hmm. So you can earn one point for naming the original song title, one point for the original artist, and one point for the language. Okay. Are you ready? I'm ready. My songs are very okay. easy. I don't think you're going to have any trouble with them. But it... My songs are also very easy. Okay, so... cool. That's probably good for me, the anti-game person. Yeah. Well, I think that they're easy. Okay. I hope you agree. We'll see. <laughs> um, so, then, do you want to go first? Sure, I'll go first. Hello, 
Um, okay, so well, full disclosure, I couldn't hear it super clearly, but the song was Hello from the Other Side, Adele. Was it Italian? Nope, it wasn't Italian. No! Was it? I'll give you three guesses. Three guesses, okay. Was it? You want the continent? Should I give you the continent? Sure. Okay. Africa. Hmm. Huh. Was it Afrikaans? Nope, it wasn't Afrikaans. <laughs> okay, I'm not going to get it, but I'll guess one more time. Okay. Was it Zulu? It was not Zulu. Okay. okay you want to know? Yes. It was Swahili. Swahili. Oh, man. Mm. Yeah. I wouldn't it's have really gotten pretty. it either. Yeah. But two points for Rachel. Okay. So let's see how you do with okay. the first one. Uh, are you ready? Yeah. Okay, I'm going to start by saying um, I know that song. I have no idea what it is. I have heard it a million times. I don't remember any of the words right now to help me identify the song. I know that a man sings it. Yeah. And that's all I've got. But I think the language might be Italian. It was really hard to hear. You weren't lying about yeah. that. We need a yeah. better system. I know. Um, was Can you give me the continent? Mm, I suppose Asia. Oh, Jesus. Okay. Technically. Okay. But also, yeah, it's a language that you've probably heard a lot. Well, at least I would guess. Okay. It's a language I might have heard a lot of in Asia. I mean, I would guess. The Asia thing is probably not helpful, though. Is it... Um, is it Kazakhstan? A Kazakhstan language? All right, I give up. What's the language? <laughs> it is House of the Rising Sun by the House animals. The okay. Yeah, and definitely wouldn't Hebrew. have got that. It's Hebrew! I almost chose a Hebrew song for you. Oh, okay. 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 Two nice. to zero. <laughs> <laughs> All right. It's my turn. This uh -huh. is also going to be really easy. So you're welcome. <laughs> Let's see how, you, how well you can hear it, though. singer yes very good or should i say daldazim <laughs> extra credit is it russian yes it's russian very Woo! nice 
Good job. Okay. I think this one, I think the song will probably be easier. All right. So, well, let's see. Everybody place your bets. Okay, it's Wake Me Up by Avicii. Yes. I did it. I did one. Again, the language. Whew. That's really difficult. It's so hard to hear. We're going to find a better I way. Um, I'm going to... Can you give me the continent? Europe. <laughs> I heard J, so I'm guessing it It could be um, Portuguese. No. Or Italian. No. Jonna. I heard Jonna. Jonna. Fuck. <laughs> Was it... Was it Romanian? Ah. What was it? It was Norwegian. Oh, it was Norwegian, huh? You got Russian and you gave me Norwegian. Cool. Thanks, Rachel. <laughs> ah. um, At least I, I did got the have song. a super easy one that I thought was too easy, really. But I'll save yeah. that for the next time. Yeah, that sounds good. <laughs> That's okay. But I also, got... if you could hear it properly, you might have done better. Mm, yeah, we'll go with that. It's the, it was an audio problem. I mean, I really had trouble, like, even identifying Russian, and I think I could do it, like, pretty easily. Yeah, you did You did a good job. You got it on the first I try. Know, but, like, still, I wasn't sure. Mm-hmm. But, like, I think if I could hear it, I could be like, oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, sure. we'll work on that. Anyway... Okay. That brings our episode on the cultural oppression of women to a close. Wait, I won. Oh yeah. Anyway, I have to claim Rachel my won. <laughs> Here's your trophy. Oh wait, you're on. You're in Europe. Somebody Yay. give this woman a trophy. Congratulations, Rachel. Okay. <clears throat> so little fun ending. Little light-hearted game. Friendly. Friendly competition to bring the mm-hmm. um, <laughs> to bring our episode on the cultural impression of women to a close. So we should say that at the beginning of the episode. Uh, don't worry, you need to get to the end of this episode, and then you'll be put back into a good mood. Yeah, and yeah, we have some very cool. I loved the covers like that I was listening to, and I was like, yeah, these are awesome. Yeah, definitely. And um, if you're working on learning a language, that would be a good way to do it. Just learn another song that you already know in a different language that you like. True. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, then I hope you enjoyed this episode. I certainly enjoyed uh, the research and our conversations and our game. Mm -hmm. Yeah, me too. It was really interesting. Uh, if a little bit difficult, but necessary. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. If you want to connect with us, we're on social. So go find us. But not TikTok, because we're too old for that. We are. Yeah, sorry. Uh, sorry, not sorry, actually. Um, yeah. Have a great week, and we will see you for our next episode, which will be on travel. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Bye. Bye.